At the bank of Antandek, they're looking for a mascot. We need an icon. Something that says high fly into all our mortgage customers. Like a falcon or a stallion. Or even better, a parrot. Check it out. <laughs> Meanwhile, at Santander, they're concentrating on helping customers find ways to take years off their mortgage with their overpayment calculator. See what's possible at Santander. All applications are subject to status and our lending criteria. Your home may be repossessed if you do not keep up repayments on your mortgage. This is Business Inspires, a monthly podcast of the Tri-Village Chamber Partnership. To run a successful business, you need resources, valuable connections, and community recognition. Business Inspires will provide you with the tools, resources, and examples to inspire you to create the business you're envisioning. Here's Michelle Wilson, Executive Director of the Tri-Village Chamber Partnership. Hi there, this is Michelle Wilson. I'm the Executive Director with the Tri-Village Chamber Partnership, and you're listening to our podcast, Business Inspires. I'm really excited to have uh, Mark Tennis with me today. Mark is with Revolution Experiment, and Karate Cowboy is one of the brands. So we're going to talk a little bit about both of those things and all of those things and and you today. Yeah. So we're going to start out with you okay. and talk about what uh, Mark wanted to be when he grew up. Ooh, well, that's uh, that's evolved a lot. We'll sure. say it this way. I uh, I graduated from Ohio State as a mechanical engineer. So when I was getting going, I was really looking at how to work in a factory and work in operations. And that was the life goal that I had for myself. Wow. And Really didn't have much vantage point outside of that until I started to travel. So when I started, my career was with Anheuser-Busch in the brewing department. Here in Columbus? Here in Columbus, yeah. Okay. The big big brewery up 71 there. They ended up promoting me and moving me out to the brewing department in Newark, New Jersey. And okay. so actually as I left Ohio and kind of broadened my horizons a little bit, kind of opened up a lot of doors and opportunities. And I knew I didn't want to be on call 24-7 in a manufacturing facility my entire life as I watched all my bosses and whatnot uh, grow up. So I went back to grad school at night at NYU and learned about this small profession called management consulting. And so that was really kind of my entry point into, oh, wow, there's this whole big business world out there beyond just uh, making beer at the time, which was all I really knew. So I got into consulting, got into the consulting clubs. And then when I left Anheuser, I got into corporate and marketing strategy consulting. So I was actually working for a small boutique agency in uh, uh, Manhattan, but our, our base was in London. And so I traveled a lot, did a lot in uh, Western Europe and Africa, South America, just doing branding projects, working for global spirits companies like Bacardi and their portfolio consists of like Grey Goose and Dewars and a bunch of, bunch of brands like that. So it was kind of one of those ones where it wasn't necessarily part of the plan, but it was a hell of a ride. So yeah, we just kind of kept going on it. That's some amazing um, travel and yeah. experience you racked up. And then eventually my wife was like, I'd love to see you like in the house more <laughs> and not on planes. So I took one small step down. So I took a job as a marketing director within our Heineken North America's and South America's team. So I actually had 40 some odd markets uh, in the Caribbean, South America, Central America, that I was working on everything but Heineken was kind of what I always told people. Wow. So it was all the local brands. If you've ever vacationed in like the Bahamas, there's a brand called Calic. I worked on that brand. St. Lucia, there's a brand called Pitone. I worked on that brand. And then Panama, Suriname, a bunch of others. And so that was a fun ride too. But what that really like opened my eyes to was I loved the world of marketing, but I loved the wor world of marketing strategy even more. 
And so I really got into this whole marketing on a budget philosophy because every one of my markets was an island or a small country. And, you know, I would get to come back to a boardroom in New York and talk about $2 million budgets for one campaign for the U.S. And I would be fighting for $20,000 to put up a billboard in Haiti, right? Like, and so, you know, these were, so we had to think a little bit more creatively. It became a more holistic model of, of looking at brand building and needs and, we had to be really insightful about local culture. And, you know, if you're, if you're talking about a national brand of Haiti that is 99% market share and you're dealing with a public of, you know, a population of, of 10 million people, but their, you know, net income is a dollar a day and your beers cost 50 cents. What do you do? Oh right. Goodness, like how yeah. do you market that product? You're not fighting another competitor because you're 99% market share. You're not, you're not trying to, you know, steal all this disposable income because there isn't a lot of disposable income. So what you like turn that into is a philosophy of business building and brand building where you start talking about economic stimulus and it's not about stealing their 50 cents a day, it's about growing their income by 50 cents a day so they have disposable income, right? So we we took a very cool approach to it. Heineken was a great playground because they were very loose and let you kind of explore and do a bunch of different things with it. And so that's really where I kind of got my teeth cut on, wow, this isn't about like fill in box A, B, and C. This mm-hmm. is about really getting out of your own comfort zone and doing different things. And and once I kind of had a nibble of that, I was kind of addicted. And then it just became very frustrated in corporate America and was like, hey, I got to go start something. And so. And here you are. And now I'm here. So but I, I have to go back for a minute because yeah. I think it's fascinating that you, you worked for, for large brands. Yeah. And you, you were, who you would think have deep pockets mm-hmm. and you were fighting for pennies yeah. of, of those budgets. Well, and it's all like, it's all relative, right? So when you're working for huge brands with huge, you know, revenue streams, they're going to allocate budget to where they think the potential is and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're, if you're talking about brands that really could grow, but have to grow in innovative ways, it's not something you're going to sink a bunch of budget towards right. because, you know, what's, what's the goal of a hundred percent market share brand. We're also in the alcohol industry. We right. don't want overconsumption. We want premiumization. We want, you know, to better people's lives. So, you know, there's a, there's a, a limit point to where you don't want to overinvest in markets that are, that don't have a ton of potential to grow. And, and every, when I tell people I work for Heineken, people's like eyes pop up and they're like, wow, what a great, like huge company, yada, yada, that you yeah. worked with. And it was always like shocking to folks to know that, you know, Heineken as a portfolio of brands in the U S alone, when I was there was about less than 5% market share. Really? You know, so for Heineken, Dos Equis, Tecate, which are all the brands that we had here in the U.S., you know, all that summed up was, was you know, less than 5%. And so coming from Anheuser-Busch, who was nearly 50% of the market right. um, by the time I left, I mean, that's a, you know, light years difference in business size and, and how they and how they grow. Now, globally, they're, they're a much bigger brand. I worked a lot with the team in Mexico because they were their major. Those brands are very large in, in, in Mexico. But it's always like kind of all that point of relativity, right? We we know our sandbox and folks are like, Heineken, huge in America. And, yeah, and I'd say, well, we make 10 times our money in Mexico, right? Like, wow. And that's because uh, mm-hmm. of the, just the size of the business in, sure. in Mexico. And it's always been this industry. So even though I've bounced around a ton, this industry is just super interesting because literally you go down any rabbit hole and there's, you know, there's brands, there's categories, there's, you know, times of when people are consuming products, there's. And so to me, it's just 
an ever changing, like constant evolving thing that we get to yeah get to explore every single day. Which right. It's kind of cool. And uh, I think it's also interesting that y- you, you went back to school and you still ended up in the beverage industry again, right. you know, you kind of, yeah. it seems like this has been your, your hover, um, of, of where you've, you've spent. My your, wife has said time. I've never grown up out of the frat house. So yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's how to spend a, a multi-decade career and never growing up from when you were 19 or, or 21. I mean, 21, 21. That's exactly, exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, that is interesting. And yeah. also that you've been to all of these exotic places and you, and you came back to Columbus, Ohio. So those Absolutely. are both two really cool things. Yeah. And the Columbus story is great. We get that question all the time, which is, Oh, you know, test city, USA, you, you like our our business, which I'm sure we'll get to, is very is very innovation driven. We're trying to do things outside of our category norms, so we get that question about Columbus a lot. And I go, I'm, I met my wife here in 2000, and this was the place we always called home. You know, I was nine years on the East Coast, and we were always like, oh, when are we going to go home? You know, like in nine years. Huh. I mean, that that starts to tell you something about where you should live and where you're ultimately going to go back to raise your kids like right. you were raised. And so there's something about the heartland, you know, people, people that grew up here want to get, yeah. it must be the water. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, but people do tend to want to come back, yeah. you know, and, and yeah. raise their kids here, like mm-hmm. you said. So, um, and certainly a great place to start a, a business. Absolutely. So uh, yeah. let's, let's talk a little bit about how you made the transition into starting revolution yeah. experiment. A lot of brick walls and a lot of headaches uh, is probably the best way to put it. I think I you're was the first person that said that. Yeah, I'm joking. No, you're not. <laughs> you feel like we've all, you know, done this. Would this conversation changes when it goes from coffee to cocktails? A little bit. Um, but yeah, I we, should note it's early in the morning and we're <laughs> drinking coffee. Yeah, I, I like. I think most entrepreneurs got well educated in an industry and you know, felt that whole 90% prepared to get into it when reality is we were probably about 10% prepared to mm-hmm. get into it. And sure. uh, that little bit of ignorance is what drives you to keep going forward so that you keep finding out things. Because if, if I would have had to talk to myself three years ago, I don't know if I would have had the stomach three years ago to continue doing what we're doing. But luckily, I didn't know that. So I just kept going. I started working on this brand for Karate Cowboy with just kind of the intention of Doing all the things that I had seen shot down in innovation departments for companies that I had worked on, hmm. you know, so big companies were always looking at, at innovative new trends and and where to go at. But for them to invest in a startup type idea like that is hit or miss where somebody like myself could go and start something up like that and they could come in and buy it. And then their their assurance of success goes up dramatically. Right. And to them, that that investment in a two year old brand versus starting it up themselves is is almost negligible to them. I saw that as a space. You know, as, as someone that wants to get out of corporate decision making and and kind of start my own thing. I wanted to get into that, and so I was looking at trends and all the wonderful market research things that we did uh, at Heineken on what categories can we explore. I obviously like had kind of an affinity to uh, international brands and international categories. And I kind of fell in love with the social aspects of sake. And so I started exploring sake and why it hasn't really blown up in the US the way that it could and and how consumers really viewed that category and where the evolution was going to go. So on the research side, it was all about Asian fusion and the, the progress of uh, Asian food in America and how it's growing and culinary usually leads beverage by, you know, three to five years or so. And so as you see the, you know, sprout up of other 
cool Ohio-based entrepreneurs who are doing things like Fusion Sushi and mm-hmm. tons of the different fusion restaurants that are coming out of Cleveland, but not, you know, going statewide and going even even region-wide. You know, those are super indicative of where where folks are getting kind of socialized into it. Because, you know, 15 years ago, if we were having this conversation, tequila wouldn't have been in a mainstream bar, would have been in a Mexican joint, right? Interesting, and, yeah. you know, you wouldn't have gone to happy hour uh, on, on Grandview Avenue and seen Taco Tuesday at every single bar, right. right? Like that's not, that wasn't an acculturation factor that played into the Midwest, but even, you know, American culture. But if you looked at how fish tacos were blowing up in California and then it kind of like spread and we always said there's always these like wonderful correlations that you can study on like how acculturation works in America. We always looked at Mexican beer on uh, and correlated it to avocado consumption. So markets that avocados were being consumed at probably meant there was a lot of places serving guacamole, probably meant there was a lot of places that were serving Mexican beer. And so as that like blew up and guacamole wasn't just in random, you know, Mexican restaurants, but right. you could get it at any, any place, mm-hmm. you know, tequila grew, Mexican beer grew, so on and so forth. So we were looking at that kind of as our foresight of like, all right, now let's look at Asian culture, Asian fusion and figure out how we can kind of Americanize the sake category in a way. And one of the big things that I was looking at when we were starting that up was how do consumers behave with sake, right? Like it's, it's right now, it's just so ingrained in a sushi restaurant culture, either, you know, folks know hot, cold, they know sake bombs, they know, Mm -hmm. is it cloudy? Is it not? Like those are, that's kind of the education stream of where, where sake's gone, but not a lot of folks are going to sake tastings like they are going to wine tastings and really understanding that, you know, it's a very similar, actually, like education trail. Instead of grapes, you're talking rice and rice polish. You're talking water, just like you are with wine. It's all about regions in Japan. So there is this like very kind of connoisseurship like play to sake, which is how they've grown that category to date. We were trying to shortcut that by not saying like, hey, we're going to go around and do these sake education tours. Rather, let's look at how other categories have grown through like cocktail culture, through uh, mainstream bar use, right? And let's fix some of those fundamental like product issues with sake. And so when we got into that, it was, all right, shelf life's a problem for bars because they open it. It's like wine. People are trying to drink it like spirits, mm-hmm. meaning like have a little bit, put it in a cocktail. They're so not having so a five ounce, six ounce pour. Right. And yeah. if you were going to go and get a sake pour in a non sushi restaurant, you're not getting the whole bottle, right? Like you're getting a, they're pouring it in a sake teeny or they're doing a Mm -hmm. a cocktail with it. Well, and shelf life becomes an issue because if you pour out of that bottle on Monday and it tastes different on Wednesday, now your cocktail program is all out of sorts, right? Or if you have to throw it away by Friday, now your waste and you know, the, the bar economics don't work. So that was kind of issue number one for us was like, let's fix shelf life. Issue number two was let's simplify because the cocktails, using it as an ingredient, we're doing multiple pours. So we were trying to combine all that under one umbrella. And then also, you know, the the biggest entity for me was really trying to just socialize it in the spirits world because a lot of folks had the misconception that it was a spirit already for the good, bad, and indifferent of it all. Folks were like, oh, it's just, it's you know, it's not forty percent alcohol. And you're like, no, it's it's like rice wine, it's thirteen to fifteen percent alcohol. And so we were just trying to kind of almost create a product that fit the already current existing perception hmm. so that we weren't having to educate over the top 
to get them away from that perception. Okay. And so Excellent. that's where, where Karate Cowboy came from, a fusion of American and Japanese, which is karate and cowboy. It was a little tongue-in-cheek. We laughed a lot when we came up with it, and we're like, actually, it's kind of picture perfect for what we're, we're trying to <laughs> create. And we're like, yeah. you know, that's, uh, you know, not taking ourselves too seriously, but really trying to to accentuate the, the two cultures that are that are represented in it. So we took sake from the Kobe region of Japan, which I went over there and scoped out quite a few facilities, but we, we have a great supplier relationship over there now. Um, we picked the Kobe Osaka region because they're a little sweeter sakis, less dry, and then we combine it with with the six times distilled grain neutral, which is a which is a corn based liquor. If we would filter it, it'd be a vodka. If you'd put it in a barrel, it's a whiskey. You know, okay. like it's kind of one of those mentalities. Hmm. That, but we're taking it in, in its unfinished perspective, combining it all and then filtering it. So it, I always say I, I would love to just be able to say it's kind of like vodka with sake, right? Make it <laughs> a lot easier for people to understand. Yeah. But in technical terms, what we're doing is we're taking a you know an unfinished spirit, combining it with our sakis, and then finishing it as if it would be a vodka. But by standards, we can't call that vodka, right? So, so that's what we that's the product that we created, and it creates its own kind of category. It's got a lot of floral and uh, and, and creamy notes that uh, you'd expect out of a sake. But it is that forty percent alcohol. That added alcohol gives us the shelf life back. So it can behave just like a vodka can. Okay. It doesn't spoil. It doesn't start to degrade over time. It doesn't have to be refrigerated, yada, yada. And so it kind of ticks all those boxes that we were really trying to fix with the product to kind of match up to the way consumers were, were viewing that category. Okay. And so that's that was the the deck that we pulled together three years ago. Now, where that's like evolved to has been crazy. But, uh, but you know, that's that was the initial thinking behind why we created all this. It wasn't just two people sitting in a room being like, let's make sake. Like, was, <laughs> that, that was the thing. Well, you it. mentioned the social part of it, yeah. and I'm interested in that because did you mean the social part of it in regards to when you uh, indicated that you didn't want to change people's perception, but you yeah. wanted to work with their perception? Is that what you, you meant? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the when you're looking at the alcohol industry as a whole, I mean, like we're, we're really trying to – to promote, like we used to say this at Heineken all the time, we were social networks before, uh, we were social networking before mm-hmm. computers existed, right? Right. You'd go to the pub, you'd meet up with people, you're chatting, that's where you met new people. Right. So many people met their husband or wife at a bar, yada, yada, right? Like uh, it's, it's a social lubricant as well of sorts with the liquid, but it's about the consumption like occasion and and how we, how we pull it together. Sake is that and ceremoniously is that for in Japan. And so when we were looking at it, it was very much so a celebratory. It was a huge part of wedding ceremonies. It was a huge part of hanging a sake barrel when you opened a new business. It's similar to kind of like what we do when we smash a champagne bottle on, okay. a, on a boat. All right. Yeah. Right. Like a big part of the alcohol industry is kind of intertwining in those like celebratory social occasions. And and if we wanted to embrace that, just like I think most companies want to embrace it, even even down to the you know the brew pub level of just having a location where you can bring people together, enjoy one thing, not make it too serious, you know, um, um, but give folks that playground to meet new people and share experiences with old friends. Right. So absolutely. Yeah. Is anybody else out there doing sake that you know of? Um, Were they when you started there? Yeah, there are a few all international. There was one company kind of doing a similar thing to us with vodka in Amsterdam and they're still doing, pretty well out in Europe and Asia. 
And then there was actually a, a mixology competition where folks were coming up with innovative products, and there was a gin sake blend hmm. that came out of the UK about okay. three years ago um, or so. Still relatively like niche as a market, but yes. a lot of folks are playing with it. It's it's less brands are doing it, but you're starting to see in like the mixology world and, and especially on the coast it getting incorporated into more and more high level cocktail making. Okay, which is really where we want to kind of promote the brand and 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 push it because it does just add a very unique twist to things that, you know, it's no different than a chef finding a new ingredient. It's, you know, it, it just adds to the breadth of what folks can do. Right. And that's kind of where we've played in the angle. And then locally here, we have a ton of great spirits producers like popping up and all doing really cool things. And it's, you know, that becomes the question all along is like, you know, how many can we sustain in this market? How can we do this? And you know, if you view it as the community that we're building here, you know, we're doing what we're doing. Middle West is doing what they're doing. Watershed's got their, you know, perspective. You've got new new distilleries popping up in uh, in Gahanna with Noble Cut. You've got, you know, 451 in Clintonville. A new but one coming here. Yeah, a new one, new one here as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, Highland. High, High Bank. High Bank. High Bank Distilling. Yes. Yeah. Great guys. And their place looks amazing already. Um, I keep driving uh, by hoping I can yeah. catch a glimpse. But. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, but they're, you know, they're, they're hard at work. Adam and Jordan team over there, great guys, you know, but we're all, we all are focused on growing the industry. Right. Um, and I think all. Central Ohio is really gaining a great reputation right. as having some world-class distilleries and spirits. Absolutely. And yeah. yeah, I mean, you guys won. We did. We, some we pretty, did. We, uh, we just won a couple, like three, medals, uh, right? three medals, all three yeah. of our products at the San Francisco, uh, world, uh, competition in 2017, which has been great. You know, we, we've, uh, We've loved that because it's an accolade for us that helps to put us on the map. You know, when sure. we, it's exactly the question you just asked, which is who else is doing what we're doing? Mm-hmm. Not a lot, which is great. Right. As an innovative company, you want to kind of be on your own. As a reference point company, it's really difficult, right? Because if I made a vodka, I could say, well, you know what vodka tastes like. Not <laughs> taste mine, right? Like it tastes different right. like mm-hmm. this, or we want it to be smoother. We want it to have these notes. We want it to be this, right? When nobody has a point of reference of what your liquid is, it's really tough to start educating folks on what it should taste like or why that's quality or what, you know, as you bring into it. So competitions like that help to put us on the map because we're, you know, you're going to 40 key tasters that are familiar with every single style and they're just basically judging you on the merit of are you making a good product, right? Like it's not, uh, it's not like, oh, I'm a gin drinker and I like it better or worse than gin. It's no, it's are we taking the time and the diligence to make a really quality product that fits the style that we're trying to go after? And, and, and we got good accolades for it. You did. I, I yeah. read that it was, there were over 2000 entries and it was a blind mm-hmm. tasting. So absolutely. Yeah. That's really ton, cool. Yeah. And in three years you've, you've started yeah. something and you're winning medals. And, Which is I, the, and, and to be honest with you, it's again, it all draws back to community. You know, when I was coming up with this brand in a, in a basement in Brooklyn, you know, we were looking at, all of our network. And so when I, when I was creating it and we came time to talk about the actual manufacturing and putting together the products, we used our net, I used my network to, to kind of find us a good distiller in Louisville. Okay. You know, at the time. So if you, if you look at my timeline, I left Columbus in 2006 and got back in 15. So those nine years, Mm -hmm. as everybody here is very familiar with was, was, a pretty drastic change, right? Like, I mean, I felt a little bit like 
Back to the Future as I like walked out. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> this is this is short north. This city okay. has I can't changed to a live lot in ten years. <laughs> so, yes. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it, a massive change. So I didn't. My network was very small. The, none of these craft distilleries existed in Columbus in, no. in 2006. So. You know, so I didn't really know what I was coming back to. Like I said, we were really moving to Columbus because we wanted to live in Columbus. And uh, so we had a distilling partnership when I started this three years ago in Louisville because we're like, it's the Mecca, right? Louisville, right. it's Kentucky. Of course, that's what you Spirits think makers. Yeah. I mean, this Bourbon, is where this yeah. is where you should be if you're going to create a quality product. Well, lo and behold, I mean, it's like anything else. It's, it takes good people with good execution and, you know, investing in the right things. And you find good and bad in every community, right? Like in, in that regard. And. The more and more I actually created a, a good relationship with Ryan Lang over at Middle West, and we started jamming on the fact of, you know, it started at a bar, like all social settings. <laughs> we're sitting there drinking. It still uh, happens. Yeah, and we're, <laughs> we were sitting there drinking at at, uh, at North High Brewing, and he turned to me and he goes, why are you making drives down to Louisville to make, like, small tweaks to your product and doing this, this, and this? And, and I was like, honest to God, it's because we just needed to, get it done. And we thought we had a really good relationship with, or we did have a really good relationship with our, with our distiller down in Louisville and just came time to pick it apart and say like, well, can we do this better? And, you know, Ryan was super confident that he could, and they've done a lot with investing in their place and they make some really great products. And, and so we just started picking it apart. And so a year and a half later, we moved all our production in house with them here in Columbus. So now that's been, I love that. I love that you collaborated with another That's amazing. It's always one of those things, and I'm a you know I'm kind of a sole founder sitting around. So having even a sounding board with you know the team over there, and and I think that a lot of folks just don't realize how collaborative we all are when we have ideas. And it's like, well, did you try sure. this? Did you try that? Like, have we tweaked this? And you know, we tweak the process. And so, you know, that was about a year ago. Now we've been with them for a year. So March. through their growth, you were yeah. there. I mean, they have some. It's a beautiful facility. Yeah. So good for you. And so we got that done and and those were actually those the first spirits that we pulled off the line at middle west were the ones that we competed with and i think folks that have seen our evolution or have tried our products have seen like how we've evolved even as a company and you never want to say like the first thing that you ever did was worse than anything else that you're going to be doing (laughs) but you know progress is good and learning and how people experience your product and cleaning it up and you know we went from a flavors only company to you know doing pure spirits and really like bringing back the genuine nature of what we're doing as a product base. And Middle West was a pivotal part of us being able to do that, Um, you know, without $10 million on our own to go build our own place, right? (laughs) And Uh, they're smart guys. And they know exactly what they're doing and they're very good at what they do. Mm -hmm. So great partnership. Definitely. Yeah. Fantastic. So tell me the three, the three uh, main flavors. Sure. We, um, so we started actually, again, kind of coming back to that, uh, insight base was we kind of wanted to create some buzz and some attention and do some of our most radical stuff up front. Mm-hmm. So we actually launched a, uh, a honey wasabi blend, sweet and spicy. Sounds very radical. The wasabi notes are really strong in it. So we, and, and by intention, uh, we normalize it by doing a ton of Bloody Marys with it. So, you know, folks get that horseradishy spice notes to it. But it also came from the culinary world, sweet, spicy. There was a lot of Asian fusion restaurants that were doing this um, kind of honey-based, you know, main dishes and wasabi-based sides so that they could, you know, blend those two flavor profiles together. So we were kind of taking that to heart. Then we launched, I think, a more mass appeal flavor, which was ginger mint. So obviously plays up very well in that mojito and mule world where mm-hmm, ginger sure. and mint 
are really great uh, flavor profiles within there. And then third, which is uh, very backwards in the way that we talk about the brand now, was our natural, like, unflavored base. And kind of two reasons for that. One was uh, we learned a lot as a flavor company, and we really wanted folks to be more educated on what our base spirit was because we didn't want people to think, again, without a reference point, what am I tasting the base spirit or is it the flavors that you're adding? We needed we needed our own reference point, I think, for for lack of a better term. But then two was actually the distilling capabilities, right? Like I always like politically incorrectly say when you launch an unflavored version, you, it's like running through the park naked. You better be pretty flawless, <laughs> right? Uh, to be able to, to be able to, uh, to show that off. Right. Um, and so that was really, we, we could not get to that level with where we were in Louisville and we tried, we just weren't getting there. And I think that's a, that's a tough decision sometimes when you want to put a product out in market, but you have to be really honest with yourself that it's maybe not ready to go yet right. and, uh, and delay and delay. But then we got it out, which is great. And now that's kind of our. It probably seemed like a long time, but it's, it's only been three in years. I mean, I'm terms, yeah. right in relative <laughs> yeah. terms. I mean, I think that's what I'm fascinated yeah. by is the, the learning and the growing and the changing you've Absolutely. made in three years and the awards you're winning in three yeah. short years. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you. Before we wrap up, I want to talk qu- quickly about Simple Times. Absolutely. Because you've yeah. launched a, a new line. We did. Yeah. And I mean, that's that was the birth of, again, you know, just kind of constantly learning. We were out in market uh, with Karate Cowboy um, so much with trying to educate people on the cocktail culture of it all. And, you know, I would go to an event and we'd make a thousand cocktails and people would love the cocktail. And the best we could ever do for them was hand them a recipe card right. that said, go home and you know, squeeze pineapples and ginger and lemon and lime and yes. you're good to go. And, and then get a confused look back and, you know, an angry grunt and then they leave. <laughs> um, you know, so what we, what we kind of, probably un- me. Yeah. <laughs> that was dig fest last year. Might have yeah. been <laughs> and so, yeah, we, so we kind of took that insight to heart, which was, it, it came more from an internal need for us, which was we need to be able to make consistent, real, all natural cocktails that promote spirits brands in the best possible light without just pumping it full of sugar and fructose where it just overshadows the spirits brand. Because, you know, if I took an overly sugared mass, you know, ball of liquid and then just throw any alcohol into it, it's going to overshadow. It's all going to taste the same. Right. And sugar negates bad alcohol. So like, that's essentially why those are created the way that they're created, right? Is, is put the least common denominator in and it's still going to taste good. We kind of took the perspective of it's time to grow up, right? Folks aren't going and just buying the worst possible liquor to put in their stuff for their house parties. And therefore, they're buying mixers, though, that overshadow that purchase that they've just made. If you're spending 10 extra dollars for a bottle of liquor, well, then respect your cocktail and make it a better cocktail, right? And so we took that vantage point on it. We started creating mixes that were not only like freshly crafted with 100% 100% all natural ingredients, but then we say surprisingly simple. I affectionately use the term dump and go cocktails, mm-hmm. which are literally bring your vodka, bring your bourbon, bring your champagne. You put it in our mix and you got a craft cocktail. And that's like just intended to kind of marry the convenience and quality factors that folks really want to go after. And you shouldn't have to sacrifice one for the other. And so that's really where the birth of simple times came from. And that one is only six months old. Um, and that's evolved. We went from three flavors of that to now we're at, I think, 13 or 14. Are you really? That we've like started oh to launch out. It was really awesome because we were able to to kind of grow that and bolster it 
through farmers markets and I, I would say like real life market research, which is put something in front of somebody, they taste it, they buy it, we like it. Let's blow that up. Let's figure out a new flavor that can fit in that line. And so we've been super flexible with we're only limited by the fresh produce we can bring in. Right. And so what we're looking for is, you know, to evolve this even bigger, do more partnerships, do more collaborations. So you're going to see things like we'll be back in the farmer's market scene. But now we're now we're you know, we've got a line of mules and lemonades that are that are now selling in grocery stores across. We just did a collaboration shandy with North High where they're using our blood orange lemonade. We're using their golden ale put them together. Now you've got an all local Shandy. Um, you know, and so you'll see much more of that coming out of this brand with those three tenants that I kind of always like talk about with us as a freshly crafted, simple, but then homegrown. And so that has to, we have to live that ethos, which is not only work with other local businesses in, in collabing and doing all these things, but also how do we ingrain ourselves better in the local agricultural community and work with local farmers and, you know, do a real stem to stern vertically and, and horizontally on how we can work well with everybody, because that's a good reason to believe. I mean, there's, I think one of the challenges when you were looking at brands and we're growing things from Columbus specifically, we can't, all of us as business owners, we can't just flag local because we have a building and we're, and we're local, right? right. We have to really look intrinsically at why does it matter that we're making this in Columbus, Ohio, if we're ever going to get a national stage presence for what we're doing? Right. And I think with simple times, when I look at our competitors that are coming out of Brooklyn, coming out of California, their reason to believe is they're cool, hip cities that are doing mixology, right? Our reason to believe is we got awesome agriculture in the Midwest. We grow this stuff. We should have the freshest, most real ingredient products coming out. And right. people should understand that and they and should, we're going to be known for it. agriculture yeah. you know and that's what people think of when they think of ohio or midwest and absolutely we then, should rest our hats right. on it and right and go where are you where are you growing those strawberries right. in in the fire escape in brooklyn right absolutely yeah we're, we have it here and we should be promoting that and we should be pushing it out on a national stage so where people know that you don't fly over these places you get great products from these places and that's what we're that's the mission that we're really trying to push out there with simple times because i think it's I think it's time and I think it's, you know, uh, obviously I think it's a great product, but um, everybody else can go out. And it is a great product. It. Yeah, it, so, it really is. But that's what we really, that's what really where we're, we're coming after it. And it's a, it's a huge departure for us as a business because now we own all that manufacturing. We're doing that all ourselves. So, so your degree scenes, comes in yeah. really handy with that right. manufacturing. Yeah. Yeah. See, it came full Well, circle. my dad's happy because I can use an engineering degree. <laughs> right, for once exactly. Again. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah, it wasn't four years of wasted. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. That's Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I love it. That's I'm, I'm so happy for you guys and such great success in a short period of time. I know you have many, many more great things to come. Thank so you. where can we find Simple Times and uh, Revolution Experiment Karate Cowboy? Where, yeah, well, where check we out people? either one of our websites, karatecowboyspirit.com or simpletimesmixers.com. There's a map with store locators on all of them, but quite a few. Uh, we're in about 20 now grocery slash liquor stores for Simple Times, Wyland's Market in, in Clintonville, 1837 in Chateau Wine and Spirits for New Albany and Polaris. Uh, we're working with Hills Markets, both locations. Huffman's I saw Twisted and, Vine. Yep, Twisted, Twisted Vine, Vine in Grandview, mm-hmm. Huffman's yep. in UA Huffman's, for, yep. for the Tri-Village. So yeah, that's that's been going very, very well. New one out in Worthington, Speckled Hen is a great, great shop uh, in Old Worthington. And then you'll see us at the farmer's markets this summer, um, Dublin, 
uh, Westerville, Worthington, Granville. So we'll be all around uh, those different places. And then we have an online shop, too. So check out the online Perfect. shop. And you'll be at yeah. DigFest. And we'll be at DigFest, showing so off both of our Both things. lines. Yeah. That's great. So, yeah. And Karate Cowboy, most most local liquor stores, essentially, state okay. agencies would, would have us. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for telling us the story. And uh, I would encourage everybody to get out there and to all of those places and, and <laughs> pick some things up and, and have some cocktails. Appreciate it. Take yeah. care. Thanks for subscribing, downloading, and listening to Business Inspires, a monthly podcast of the Tri-Village Chamber Partnership. Our innovative and active chamber is successful because of our smart and engaged members who cultivate our strong business community. With more than 60 years as an integral part of the Grandview, Upper Arlington, and Marble Cliff communities, the Tri-Village Chamber Partnership is dedicated to a single purpose, the success of the business community. You can find a link to our website in the podcast notes to learn more about the Tri-Village Chamber Partnership. For information about this podcast, to schedule a guest appearance, or to find out more about sponsoring this podcast, our contact information is in the podcast notes. Make sure you rate and review our podcast on iTunes. That helps us spread the word about Business Inspires. Circle270media.com at the Bank of Antandek, they're looking for a mascot. We need an icon. Something that says high fly into all our mortgage customers. Like a falcon. Or a stallion. Or even better, a parrot. Check it out. <laughs> Meanwhile, at Santander, they're concentrating on helping customers find ways to take years off their mortgage with their overpayment calculator. See what's possible at Santander. All applications are subject to status and our lending criteria. Your home may be repossessed if you do not keep up repayments on your mortgage. With rapid insurance on Vodafone Business, we'll get a replacement phone to you within four hours. So if you should... Oh, no! Or even... Just get in touch and we'll... Your replacement phone, sir. Your phone replaced within four hours with our rapid insurance. Available on our new and limited data plans. The future is exciting. Ready? Vodafone Business. Max download upload speeds apply to data. Coverage may vary. Unlimited and rapid terms at vodafone.co.uk slash terms.